Hello and welcome to the February 2019 edition of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name is Colin Yeo and I'm joined by Deputy Editor CJ again. This month we're starting with a quick discussion of deprivation of citizenship in the context of the Shamima Begum case. We're going to tackle some of the case law on asylum, in particular dealing with a couple of Sri Lankan cases for some reason, and then to legal aid where there is good reason for practitioners seeking to backdate a certificate. Um, it's good news for them, but the government confirmed that the major cuts to legal aid of recent years will remain in place. We're going to touch on a couple of cases about taking an asylum appeal before looking to Brexit, which is coming up shortly apparently, unless there's an extension. And then finally, we've got a quick mention for some new research from us on Home Office Enforcement of Rights to Work Fines. Right, CJ, would you like to get started? Yes, we thought we would talk about Shamima Begum, uh, as that case was a massive story in February. This is the British teenager who who fled to Syria as a schoolgirl to link up with ISIS. The Home Secretary has since said that she is to be deprived of her British citizenship. And subsequently, we learned that her third child has has actually died in that Syrian refugee camp. So on a human level, a, a really tragic story. We covered the story obviously more from the legal level uh, on the website because the power to deprive someone of their UK citizenship is a, a legal issue. We had one article before that deprivation decision was taken that was written by Bilal Shabir and I think his take was sort of borne out by events, I think it's fair to say. And then we had a piece written just after the decision by Fahad Ansari who's actually been involved in some really relevant cases on deprivation. Um, had also uncovered some figures on how many people have lost their citizenship in recent years. Really interesting, a massive spike in deprivations of citizenship in 2017 compared to just a trickle in, in previous years. Yeah, it's really interesting to see those figures. I mean, we'd, we'd, I'd, I'd done FOI requests previously to try and get hold of this information and the, the government had in previous years been extremely reluctant to release the numbers for some reason and had started to, to um, respond to FOI requests. But then suddenly, I, I thought there'd been a big increase sort of around 2013-14, um, but suddenly it's been an absolutely huge number. And I think to be fair to politicians, this isn't just about a sort of change of policy where deprivation of citizenship is something that they're willing to contemplate now and they weren't previously to be there is an element of that in it but to be fair there's also of course the the, the fall of um daesh um isis in in syria and iraq and the, you know the return or the putative return of, of all those british citizens who'd gone out there to fight or express their sympathy in some way so there has been a a real issue with um what to do with those returning citizens um, unfortunately, in my view, at least, you know, citizenship, citizenship deprivation has been one of the the big elements of that response. And we've argued previously on the blog, it's it's not really an appropriate um, thing to do. It, it kind of reinforces the very two tier nature of British citizenship, where some are more equal than others, because it's only possible to deprive somebody of their citizenship, generally speaking, um, if they hold another nationality. And whether you hold another nationality is pretty random. It depends basically not on where you were born, but on, on your parents usually. Um, and I, I think there are some people who disagree with my, my take on this, which is that if you've naturalised as British, then kind of, frankly, if you've done something obviously disloyal, then it's kind of fair enough if your citizenship gets taken away from you, providing you're not left stateless as a result of that. But if you were accidentally born with another nationality because of who your parents are and where they came from, then t and you were born in the UK and you're, you're entitled to your citizenship in that way, it seems really very unreasonable, very unfair, and it, it, it has all these kind of social ramifications about two-tier citizenship 
if we start depriving those people only um, of their British citizenship. So it's pretty worrying to see that that spike in numbers. Yeah, and, and you could sort of see that in the Shamima Begum case, couldn't you? Because the, the legal argument is that she, despite being British-born, has a sort of Bangladeshi background and therefore wouldn't be stateless. But, you know, if you see the interviews with her, she's sort of saying, but, you know, I've never been to Bangladesh. I'm, I'm sure I'm not Bangladeshi. Uh, you know, where is this coming from? Uh, yeah, and she might be wrong, um, but it's just there, there's no real connection there, is there? It's just purely by chance that her... Um, that's the way Bangladeshi nationality law works, really. Yeah, and and and, so, and I haven't been willing to opine on Bangladeshi nationality law, unlike a lot of other people online who suddenly seem to profess themselves experts in it. Well, I think I think to be fair to uh, Fahad, who um, wrote our article, he's been involved in cases where the issue has been uh, British Bangladeshi people and British Bangladeshi and Bangladeshi nationality law so he actually is one of the few people who does know what he's talking about in these yeah, things. Yeah Farhad's actually one of a he's a he's a you know, genuine um, actual expert in Bangladeshi uh, citizenship law I think after the the cases that he's been involved in um, but you know British citizenship works in a similar way so um, if you if you're a British citizen by birth and you go abroad and you have a child then that child is automatically British whether you like it or not whether the child likes it or not or whether you know it or not and um, this can have um, interesting ramifications in countries which only have uh, allow for dual, for, for sole citizenship sorry so and in the UK UK nationality law is very relaxed about holding multiple citizenships but then not all countries are the same and then there's also and this brings to mind a kind of ongoing um, thing in Australia where a number of politicians have had to step down from public office because they have a bar there on dual citizens holding public office and it turned out that you know surprise surprise in a country which was you know largely populated latterly through through European um, migration that quite a few of those people um, have ended up you know retaining the the European citizenship um, of their parents or grandparents um, whether they knew it or not whether they liked it or not they they happened to have that citizenship and um, they had to had to resign from public office as a consequence yeah I suppose the, the other area where that sort of automatic nature of nationality law is having a political uh, political controversies in Northern Ireland where at the moment there's a lot of people who are very unhappy about being British citizens um, and they are legally because that's how the British Nationality Act worked but their argument is well the Good Friday Agreement says I should be able to pick and choose my national identity um, and if I, in my view both those things are true right you can be sort of automatically legally British and still sort of identify with your other nationality in terms of your personal identity but there's this perceived clash and um, that's the same thing again it's just automatic nationality law kicking in it's one of the the shames of, of brexit um there's lots of problems with brexit but one of the problems is that it sort of i think it's forcing a lot of people to choose about their identity because free movement allowed a fudge basically you know you didn't have to become british to have a secure status in the uk people thought um they could they could come here and eu law protected them everybody was an eu citizen and so on but Brexit brings that to an end and, and it, it is forcing families to choose. You know, you've got to either remain a citizen of the country of origin or, um, you know, if, if dual citizenship isn't allowed in that country or 
um, become British and you know, that then has consequences for the children in the future as well. Absolutely, it's a, it's a good point but we better not dwell on Brexit too much or people will get uh, depressed and upset. So let's move on to asylum. There are a couple of cases we want to talk about to do with Sri Lanka, um, actually two in the Court of Appeal, both called KK Sri Lanka, which is very helpful. But the citation for the first one is 2019 EWCA-59. And this basically said, Sri Lankan asylum seekers who give evidence to a war crimes inquiry are not necessarily at risk if they remain anonymous. It's only if they were to be identified by the Sri Lankan government that risk uh, arises. The other KK Sri Lanka case was about the Sri Lankan country guidance. So this is 2019 EWCA Civ 172. Uh, and basically, asylum judges can sort of second guess the Sri Lankan country guidance to maybe oversimplify. Uh, in this case, a tribunal judge found that there was fresh evidence about what's going on in Sri Lanka that justified granting asylum to someone who might not have been able to stay if she was sort of rigidly sticking to the country guidance. And the Court of Appeal backed the judge saying that, yes, the country guidance is the starting point, but you can depart from it if there is cogent and reliable evidence. Not necessarily a new sort of legal finding there, Colin. I, I gather from comments on social media, people were saying this has always been the case. Yeah, it's a bit of a, it's, it's a surprise that this one um, passed the second appeals test and got up to the Court of Appeal. I say surprise, it's not that much of a surprise because it was a Home Office appeal. They do, I have to say, seem to find it relatively easy to, to pass the second appeals test in their, in their appeals. Um, but no, there's nothing surprising really about this decision. And the Home Office was left arguing that the judge should have quoted the adverse bit of some reports as well as the positive bits of some reports. Um, the Court of Appeal ultimately said, look, you she'd obviously the judge had obviously read the whole thing otherwise she wouldn't have been able to quote the positive bits that she did she doesn't have to go through everything as if she's doing a mini country guidance case she was entitled to make the findings she did um and it's they, they try to kind of um skirt around the facts rather so it's a little bit difficult when you read the 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 judgment to find out what's going on and what his case was based on and um i guess they're trying not to create some sort of new risk category or risk factor or however you want to describe it sort of for a new category of person and he had quite a complex background he he already had a failed asylum claim there was deportation going on in the background um he'd been involved to some extent it was disputed um with um various different kind of surplus political campaigning activities in the UK and in in Europe as well um he'd also been involved in in some sort of human um, smuggling activities for which he'd been convicted. So it was, he had quite a lot going on in his case. And yeah, ultimately, the judge said um, she, he was entitled to asylum. Good result for him, but maybe explains why the Home Office were so keen to appeal if there was a, there was a lock on in the background. Um, anyhow, let's uh, look at another asylum decision, uh, quite a positive one, we think, from the Upper Tribunal. The case was PAA, brackets, FTT, Oral decision, written reasons, close brackets, 2019, UKUT 13, IAC. This one was about a 16-year-old Iraqi boy who was seeking asylum. The immigration judge had said after his hearing in the first tier tribunal that he would get asylum, but then changed his mind and issued a written decision refusing the boy asylum. Uh, that went to the upper tribunal. 
the vice president Uckleton found that the oral decision was what counted. You, you, if you've given a uh, decision sort of orally on the day, you can't take it back in writing later. Thankfully for that child, I suppose. Yeah, and it's it's it's, it's a welcome decision. It's not a huge surprise, I guess. I, mean, I, I can only imagine how astonished the representatives and the clients, of course, must have been when they they got the written decision through in this case. Um, but it, it does. There's there's a sort of annoying element to this decision where the lawyers get criticised for um, coming allegedly unprepared, and yet the first tier judge who was responsible for this mess um, remains anonymous, and that that's pretty commonplace in upper tribunal decisions, and it's a practice that's um, really ought to end, in my view. Yeah, it's interesting when you read these decisions. If it's just a sort of neutral discussion of a first tier decision, the judge is usually named. But if they're really getting a hammering, they they don't give the judge's name, whereas the the, the lawyers always are. Uh, anyhow, um, there is then a new country guidance case to do with uh, e. I've written Iraqi Kurdish asylum seekers, but it's Iranian Kurdish asylum seekers, isn't it? Um, this originally came out in December, and we covered it briefly, but there's now a much longer article by Rudolf Sperling on how to use this case. Uh, he calls it a major step forward in securing refugee convention protection in the UK for Iranians of Kurdish ethnicity who fear persecution in their home country. So we, we won't get into the nitty-gritty, but if you are representing Iranians of Kurdish ethnicity, uh, take a look, look at Rudolf's analysis of this case. It's, it's very detailed, very helpful. Yeah, it's, it's a really good post, and um, Rudolf's main point is don't just look at the headnote, which is good. The headnote is very good, but um, don't just look at the headnote. Also look at some of the expert evidence as summarised in the in the decision. And this, this really is a game-changer in Iranian um, Kurdish cases, because for a long time now there's been clear evidence of danger. The Home Office has refused to accept that. Hopefully this means that less of those cases will have to go to appeal now and the Home Office will actually start um, granting asylum at first instance. Here's hoping. Uh, given that it's a game changer, I should give you the citation, which is HB Kurds Iran CG 2018 UK UT 230 IAC uh, 2018. So as I say, it came down just uh, before the end of the uh, last year. Uh, then there is another new asylum case in SA Afghanistan, 2019 EWCA Civ 53. Uh, the headline on Ian Halliday's article about this case was, don't forget about Article 8 in asylum cases, uh, which really says it all. It's, it's just a decision sort of making the point that even if someone has refused asylum, you may still want to bring in human rights arguments, even if, even if uh, their asylum claim has failed. There was a Scottish case last year which, which made the same point, and this is the Court of Appeal saying uh, the same thing. Uh, Colin, I don't know if this is something that actually comes up a lot in practice, that you might you might win on human rights even though you fail on asylum. It can happen. I mean, in most cases it doesn't, but there are cases that arise where somebody's particularly vulnerable. You can argue that's an asylum claim or, or it's irrelevant to the asylum claim sometimes, but um, potentially you might be able to argue that's part of a human rights claim as well. Um, and it's kind of... It's sort of an obvious thing, but it's useful to be reminded of these things sometimes. Absolutely, yeah, a, a reminder case for sure, rather than anything, anything groundbreaking. Uh, there's then a case from the Upper Tribunal about family reunion under the Dublin Regulation. The Dublin Regulation being the EU procedure on where an asylum claim, claim should be decided. The Home Office argued that Article 9 of the Dublin 3 Regulation only applies to current beneficiaries of international protection and therefore this particular family couldn't use it to be reunited in the UK because the father was no longer a refugee, he'd actually become a British citizen. 
but the Home Office last, so uh, even the British citizen can bring qualifying family members into the UK under these provisions. And the case is called R, brackets BJ and others, close brackets, uh, and Secretary of State for the Home Department, Article 9, Dublin 3, Interpretation, 2019, UK UT 66 IAC. Another nice long original citation for us there. Uh, Colin, anything to add on that? No, not really. I mean, it's the second case we've seen where the Home Office seems to be interpreting this really, unfortunately, narrowly. Um, they've been overturned again for different reasons. This determination is, frankly, unnecessarily long and complex, but you know, it's a good outcome at the end. Let's turn then away from asylum to legal aid. James Packer from Duncan Lewis has glad tidings on this front. His firm took a legal challenge about backdating legal aid certificates. As I understand it, this is to do with getting paid for legal aid work that you did before legal aid for the case was signed off by civil servants. The legal aid agency uh, backed down in face of that legal challenge and there are now new regulations that have been published which allow officials to backdate a legal aid certificate, which sounds like a victory for common sense, that one. Uh, on the other hand, sort of as you mentioned at the outset, Colin, the big picture uh, legal aid in immigration cases still rather bleak. There was a major review of legal aid cuts published by the government in February and essentially it says nothing to see here, particularly when it comes to immigration. No major changes coming down, no loosening of the cuts, just a small silver lining in that there will be an amendment granting legal aid to unaccompanied migrant children. That's about it. It's, it's, It's a very disappointing review and a really sort of standout feature of this to me was that there's no mention of Windrush at all and and there's a, there's a very strong argument to say that the Windrush issues wouldn't have been as bad a problem as they became if legal aid had been available to those who were affected. So not to even give that any kind of mention at all in the review seems sort of astoundingly negligent, frankly. Yeah, very surprising. But let's just look then at a couple of cases on the immigration appeals generally, I suppose. One is, again, for the Upper Tribunal, the case of AK and IK, Section 85 NIAA 2002 New Matters, Turkey 2019 UKUT 67 IAC. This is a procedural one basically about what constitutes a new matter in an immigration appeal. Uh, As we know, if something is deemed a new matter, the Secretary of State has to consent for you to be able to raise it during an ongoing appeal. The Upper Tribunal in this case taking quite a firm line saying even if the new issue you want to raise was not something that was even legally possible to to raise at the outset. Tough luck, you still need consent. Uh, so in this case, there was a, a new settlement route for Turkish citizens on the, the Ankara Agreement. It seemed to benefit the family and they wanted to put it into the mix in their appeal. Uh, the tribunal said that's still a new matter, even though it's a totally new route. Yeah, it's, I, I find these cases quite surprising and a bit disappointing if if i was the upper tribunal i would not be interpreting this provision um as widely should we say as the upper tribunal seems to be in a, in a string of these cases because it basically allows one of the parties to dictate to the tribunal what issues it's allowed to consider and i've said before that I've, the upper tribunal is often more of a, a shirker than a worker when it comes to its own jurisdiction and it it sort of seems to be quite happy to wash its hands of issues. I'd be interested to see some of these go up to the Court of Appeal, and maybe maybe this one will. The sort of setup seems to mean that it, it could at least potentially, unlike some of the others we've seen, um, because I, I suspect the Court of Appeal might just say, "What are you playing 
about with. Just just get on with it and decide these cases because it doesn't do anybody any good for something to be excluded and have to be the subject of another less completely separate later application and appeal further down the line. That's it because it, it just means that once this appeal process ended, they then presumably go back and, and apply under this new route and start again yeah yeah just get on with it they don't, and, and it's not that they 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 are being forced by the wording of the statutes to to adopt this really wide um, interpretation in my view um my my take is that judges are deliberately interpreting it as widely as possible so they don't have to just they don't deal with stuff basically fair enough uh, they're, they're they've been consistent in that approach as you said over the years uh, let's give a brief mention for a court of appeal case called Bandari and another, and Texas of States 2019 EWCA Civ 129. This was all about fairness in immigration appeals, and in particular about an older case called Patel, which is seen as helpful for applicants in terms of what it said about fairness and what, how the Home Office should be acting fairly. Darren Stevenson writes about this case, uh, essentially that that old helpful Patel case is in trouble the Court of Appeal thinks it's a lot of rubbish basically so I suppose the main takeaway is that if you're thinking of relying on this Patel fairness concept in an appeal maybe don't bother yeah they're, they're not very positive about that and it, it's a shame because um, you know it's I think we dealt with another one of these points-based system cases last month where basically it's sorry but tough is is the overall message that these these um, appellants are getting um, sympathy is expressed for their position, but uh, uh, what was your what was your phrase about the parsnip, CJ, last month? Uh, fine words, butter, no parsnips. Is that it? That, that's the one. That's the one, and that is, yeah, that's that's the result here as well. Let's then look to uh, Brexit. We can't avoid it uh, entirely, and some other EU free movement type issues. Uh, there were some important draft regulations published in the middle of February to come into force whenever Brexit kicks in, whether that's on the twenty ninth of March or slightly delayed or at the end of December 2020, if there's a withdrawal agreement. Uh, to summarise these regulations as briefly as possible, the first set are the Immigration, Nationality and Asylum EU Exit Regulations 2019. They'd make about 50 changes to existing UK immigration laws so that they make sense after Brexit. Um, but that would include some quite significant things, such as scrapping the Dublin transfer system, because we just wouldn't be in that EU-wide system after Brexit. Uh, those regulations would also remove the higher EU law protection against deportation for minor crimes. Uh, there was a second draft instrument then, the Immigration European Economic Area Nationals EU Exit Order 2019. Uh, and this one, I suppose, starts the move away from free movement because it says that once the existing EEA regulations that govern EU free movement are scrapped, there will be an automatic right of admission for EU citizens, uh, but just for three months. And again, this isn't the full-blown new future immigration system that's been promised in, in the immigration white paper, but it's making use of the freedoms uh, from the government point of view that will come from not being an EU member to tighten things up a bit uh, in advance of a much bigger overhaul down the line. So, so worth being aware of what those regulations will do. We should also check in with the position of existing EU residents, so EU citizens already living in the UK. As we probably know by now, people who are already here will be able to apply to stay using the EU settlement scheme. Around 150,000 people have already applied, in fact, but that leaves over 3.5 million more to do so. The main reason people might be rejected for the settlement scheme is criminal convictions. Um, and just to mention a briefing that you've written, Colin, about what kind of criminal convictions would, will cause existing residents' problems. 
Yeah, and it's um, it's quite an expansive kind of definition that the Home Office has adopted here of sort of public good refusals and deportation. It's it's on the face of it pretty concerning. And it, in short, and anybody who's received any sentence of imprisonment at all within the last five years apparently will be considered for deportation, although that doesn't mean they actually will be deported. Um, it just means that their case gets referred to um, the, the enforcement team at the Home Office who will then conduct a more thorough review, look at their personal circumstances, that kind of thing. Um, but I think that means that they may well get a letter um, from the Home Office saying that they're being considered and an opportunity to, to make representations. If they don't make representations, that's that's potentially very dangerous to them. They need to make the Home Office aware of what their circumstances are, family members, length of residence, that kind of thing, um, in order to make sure they safeguard their position. Um, whether, whether, and that's certainly how things work at the moment. Whether that is actually how things are going to work in future is, is a, a bit of a mystery because um, if that is what the Home Office does, then it, it's going to be creating an awful lot of work for itself. I don't, I don't want to worry people, but I'm, I, I'm a bit worried about this. Um, and, and yeah, it'll be interesting is one neutral way of putting it to see sort of how this um, how this develops over time absolutely uh, at least your briefing is a good starting point for people trying to get their heads around this stuff uh, the sort of overview at the start I find really helpful just to give you a sense of what's what's happening uh, there's then some detail uh, it's called uh, briefing how criminal convictions affect settled status for EU citizens that's that's on the website published in February in advance of Brexit, anyhow, uh, life goes on in terms of EU law. So there are a couple of cases that affect EU law as it currently stands. The first is Kunwar, EFM, Calculating Periods of Residence 2019, UKUT 63, IAC. This is about the rights of non-EU extended family members of EU citizens. So, for example, an unmarried partner. Uh, and basically this case really hammers home the point that these extended family members have hardly any rights unless they get a residence card. And it's only once they have a residence card that your rights under EU law really kick in. So in this case, for example, the person involved was a Pakistani citizen in a long-term relationship with a Polish resident, but not married. Um, he'd lived here for years and years, but he couldn't get permanent residence status because he'd not had a residence card for long enough. I think we've seen a few of these cases on extended family members, Colin, where they, they say the same thing. If you don't have a residence card, tough luck. Yeah, I think I think if you're following this and you're a lawyer, then you probably knew that that was the case. And there was some Court of Appeal stuff on this previously, but it's um, it's really underlined again by this this upper tribunal decision. And this, you know, this does have um, consequences further down the line, because... Um, whether you are resident under EU law, um, if you're a family member, is basically your gateway to staying um, in the UK. And if you're a durable partner and you don't have a residence card, you're not resident as a family member under under EU law and you're not going to qualify for pre-settled or settled status. So if people are in this position, they really need to make sure they get an application and get a residence card. Good to know. Finally, in EU law, just a court of justice case to update you on. There's a case called C32217, Bogatu and Minister for Social Protection. This was about exporting child benefit. In other words, claiming child benefit for a child who lives back in Poland or, or Romania, as I think it was in this case. The Court of Justice held that you don't need to be working in order to claim your child benefit and send the money home. It sounds like the kind of case that before Brexit would have been all over the tabloids, Colin, you can imagine the headlines, but given that we seem to be heading out the door, I don't think there was a huge outcry, really. 
No, and you know, tabloids and Daily Mail and so on just aren't interested in running these kind of stories anymore, which is you know, positive, but um, it is also a sad reflection of um, how far they've already won all the arguments, basically. True enough. There's uh, another case we want to give a quick mention to because it's one of these uh, Hamid disciplinary cases. It is Jetley and another and Secretary of State 2019 EWHC 204 admin really shambolic litigation and the, the high court just incredibly scathing about the um a, a, a named solicitor and a couple of um i suppose paralegals uh, as well all sorts of weird stuff about carrying on a business from the address of a former firm and holding themselves out as solicitors it's i suppose I don't want to get into the details because if i'm not a high court judge there's maybe more implications in, in defamation because it was really scathing but um there was a referral anyway under the the hamid disciplinary procedure and it was interesting to see that mrs justice andrews who gave the judgments describes herself as the i think it's the lead judge on hamid cases or the the responsible judge so there is a sort of named high court judge who is responsible for these disciplinary procedures for immigration lawyers yeah that was news to us and we've, we've got a bit more information from the judicial office which we will look at sharing perhaps in the in the near future on on that issue um and i think we should say that the the key firm in this particular bit of litigation um wasn't criticized by the judge it, it seemed to be kind of rogue operatives who'd been associated with the with the firm so um it, i think it was i think i'm right in saying it was they who were the referred to the sra uh, yes as well as a solicitor from a different firm who sort of appeared on the record very late in the day and and was part of why it was such a why it was such a mess um but yes you're right the the, the firm that the jetley case began with was um sort of given a clean bill of health if you like from the high court um you can only imagine their um, horror of being sort of dragged into this mess uh, against their will perhaps um, the last thing to mention is some research we did this month into illegal working fines. So the penalties for employers found to be hiring undocumented workers. There is a basically a major gap that you notice, Colin, between the amount that the Home Office levies in fines and the amount that actually gets paid. And the data is difficult and there's time lags and the Home Office work at pains to point out any... Um, flaws they could in their analysis but our our best sort of guess i suppose or our, our best analysis given the limitations is that even if you take into account early payments that reduce the amount the companies have to have to pay and things like that only about half of the gross fines that are levied have actually been paid over the past five years so really interesting so the other half is either appealed so the home office was sort of wrong to issue the fine in the first place or just simply weren't paid were avoided in some way we can't say from the available data how much is appeals how much is companies going under how much is people just not paying but it was just interesting to see it's it appears it never had the reputation of being the most efficient enforcement system uh, ever and, and that may seems to be borne out by these figures yeah and if you look at the figures and the difference between the totals um you know for some years they're relatively well matched and you know, I look at 2012 there's there's not a huge discre discrepancy between the number levied and the number collected and and then in other years it's just huge you know, it's less than half um, and I suppose to be fair to home office in more recent years you might well say well they haven't finished the collecting for those more recent years you know they may well get in more money over time 
um, but 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 still, it's um, there's quite a, quite a surprising difference in those numbers. Yeah, I mean, th- they did make the point, you know, the the spin doctors, if you like, we got in touch about this, the time lag and that, you know, fines are collected over uh, a couple of years. In some cases, there's payment plans and things. But just if you look at it in the, you know, if you look at it in the round, you know, over the whole decade for which we have data, um, there's over a hundred million pounds missing, basically in terms of either it was appeal or it wasn't paid, and so you know you're not going to make up all of that in sort of future years. No, no, and it's the, and it was quite entertaining. The Home Office really wasn't happy with us. I got the impression um, when we we said we were going to be running this story, but um, that suggests possibly we're doing something right. Um, I think we'll we'll probably end this month on that note. Um, so I think I'll say goodbye from me and CJ. Goodbye. Okay, thank you, and we'll be back next month.